Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Let's get going. Here we are at the 2018 Mockingbird Conference in New York, and for the basically the first or one of the first times uh, we're doing this in person. And not only that, we're I'm looking at a bunch of faces staring back at us. So uh, do forgive us if this is just totally. Um, horrendous. Uh, but we're here in the chapel at St. George's, and um, I'm staring up at the arches where, under which my older brother was actually married, and um, this, is, this is where we used to eat uh, for the Mockingbird Conference, when RJ, way back when. Way back when, it was fun. <laughs> when you didn't have gray hair. Do I have gray hair now? No, no. you don't oh, have gray okay. hair. That's just I me. The, I get a couple no. every so often, no. and then my wife and then they, them. Yeah, RJ yeah. ages in reverse. Yeah. So. Well, I, I, I think like, I get a chest hair. <laughs> my wife, pop it out, stay smooth. There are people in front of us. <laughs> I know. We're going to need some response, too. It's going to be really weird if you're just excited. I wish we had an, an applause light or something. It's going to be very, it's, it's uh, yeah, embarrassing. We can edit this, though, right? Okay, oh, yeah. we can edit. Okay, we'll edit great. every Good. time. Just edit. Edit all of it out. Um, well, I feel badly because I'm asking you guys to record this, and tonight you're both presenting. So, can you? What, where are your nerves? What's the? What's your status of report as you walk into New York City uh, on uh, April the 26th? RJ, you got a funny look on your face. I'm excited. I, I feel. I feel uh, more prepared than I usually do at this point with two and a half hours. Left to go, um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Should be should be fun. Beautiful day in New York. I know it's supposed to you know pour rain tomorrow, but always nice to come in from uh, Long Island. You know, come in from uh, LaGuardia and see the the jewel of the city. You know, laid out in front of us. So excited to be here. Excited for a great um, great weekend. Yeah, I'm excited too to be the chaplain. That's uh, I feel like. Do you guys remember the um, Hair Club for Men ad? And you were like, "And I'm not just the president of Hair Club for Men. I'm also a member." Like, I feel like that's official now that I'm the chaplain. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. Um, well, thank you guys for doing this. This is fun. The first thing um, that I thought of to talk about that came across our uh, screens this week was the New Yorker put up something called GPS Directions uh, for Adulthood by someone named Irving Buon. And it, it sort of apes GPS directions. It's a humor piece. Uh, it's, I'll read parts of it to you. In half a mile, make a right onto Employment Street. You majored in philosophy and passed Employment Street. In 500 feet, make a U-turn onto Grad School Boulevard. You missed the U-turn, and your most endorsed skill on LinkedIn is quote-unquote <laughs> Microsoft Word. Rerouting. In three miles, take the exit onto Therapy Avenue. Instead of exiting, you ran a red light while ranting about your sister Beth, who is a successful neurosurgeon and somehow still manages a side hustle selling charm bracelets on Etsy. <laughs> Re- rerouting to Jealousy Road. Bear in mind that you can still find love. Beth met Dave while working 30-hour shifts during her residency. 
In a thousand feet, make a left onto Intimacy Lane. You veered wildly off Intimacy Lane, rerouting to Fear of Commitment Parkway. In two miles, make a right. There is nothing interesting there, but the important thing is to keep moving forward, even if your only friend is the bartender at Applebee's. I noted several points of interest for you nearby. There's a 24-hour Planet Fitness within two miles that you... Rerouting to Applebee's. <laughs> I'll take you there, but I don't condone this. Look, this is against protocol, but I'm starting to worry about you. In 900 miles, make a left onto moving back in with your parents' street. Rerouting to Pursuit of Happiness Expressway. Expect many tolls. Funny, because it's true. Yeah. yeah. I kept waiting for you to say, like, now you're on Vision Board Avenue. You know what I mean? Like, when everything falls apart, you just make a vision board, and then you get your life together. That's a joke. What does your vision board look like, Sarah? <laughs> what is your five-year plan? What's your what five-year plan, five Sarah? What is my five-year plan? A um, lot of mac and cheese from the box. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and a lot of coffee. That's my five. That's like what it's the your next five minutes. Yeah, plan. that's exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you find yeah. that whole plan. Yeah, exactly. We, we have a three pack of ten dollar Applebee's gift cards lying in a drawer at home right now that someone gave us when we first came to St. Martin's because it's just a, a lovely church and we've never used them. We're excited to use them. There are no Applebee's close to us, believe it or not. We have to drive like twenty miles. So every time we go on vacation, we get to say this time we're going to go to Applebee's. We're going to use this thirty dollars, but we we never end up using them. So someday we will go. But don't get me wrong. We go to Outback Steakhouse and Chili's and other sort of, you know, Applebee's type places, but have not yet spent those, uh, those 30 bucks. Hmm. That's fascinating. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Now Just, you see why, why we're going to edit. Yeah. Now you see unbelievably edit. interesting. Yeah. I like Applebee's. I mean, if we're talking about Applebee's, I like Applebee's. I've read that article. You know what I mean? Like yes. the neon well, drinks. There's nothing wrong with Applebee's. Did you guys feel like you followed directions to adulthood? Are you there yet? No, adulthood is when you realize that you have no, no control over mm. anything and you give up, mm. I think, you know, and... and uh, Say more. So yes, indeed. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, you know, we just, uh, we just had a baby, and, I'm, you know, that was unexpected. We've got a 15-year-old, a 13, as I, as I talk about sometimes, you know, 15-year-old, 13-year-old, year-and-a-half-old, just like we planned when we got married. We're like, <laughs> this is how we want to do it. So I'll have uh, kids in the home until I'm, you know, 60-ish. 85. 85, exactly. Uh, never thought I'd be living in Houston, Texas, but love it. Um, didn't thought I'd go, think I'd go to seminary in a burned-out steel town in rural, Pen- you know, outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, life is kind of crazy, but you kind of learn to roll with the punches, God willing, and uh, enjoy, the, enjoy the ride. Sarah, so, I was listening to an interview with you this week on crackers and grape juice, and they were talking about how someone had slipped you, your mentor had slipped you some discernment books mm-hmm. when you were a teen or something? Yeah, when I was 18, a guy named Andy Andrews at St. Andrews in Jackson, Mississippi, he was like the curate there, um, slipped me a book about discernment. He was supposed to give me books about women in the Episcopal priesthood because my adult plan had been to never get married um, and to be rector of a church with about 45 people on a Sunday in rural Mississippi, because I dream really big when I dream. <laughs> yeah. Um, and at some point, like at 42, I would adopt um, foreign, not domestic. But um, that... 
<laughs> None of that worked out. But yeah, I was so I was studying women in the Episcopal priesthood. There weren't a lot of women priests in Mississippi at that point in time. And he gave me a book about discernment. So mm. yeah, it was a very, very much a Since holy thing. Since then, it's just thing. been smooth sailing. Oh yeah, it's been really easy. So that actually then. worked. The book on discernment actually worked. I mean, it brought all of the plans for college to a screeching halt. But cool. um, yeah, it, good. Yeah. I was supposed to go to college. Um, I did go to college at the College of Santa Fe to major in musical theater. And I got there and I lasted a semester, which meant that I went to Ole Miss um, my freshman year and my hair was about this long and it was fuchsia and I had a nose ring. And if y'all aren't familiar with the University of Mississippi, that's not exactly how you show up if you want to make friends. So, in the um, blade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I was thinking, uh, my friend, uh, there's an organization in Charlottesville that has gotten a grant, a, a grant from the Lilly Foundation to do all of this stuff about vocation. Mm-hmm. And vocation's kind of a, a bit of a buzzword. I don't remember hearing about vocation. Uh, you know, none of us, unless you were brought up in a Lutheran church or something like that, uh, you don't really hear much about vocation. And then uh, people got so excited about vocation about 10 years ago. And so everyone's talking about faith and work, faith and work. And so they're doing, they're implementing all of these vocation classes with, which are kind of like discernment classes with undergraduates. And they realized at the end of it that no one, the result of it is that no one's going into ministry. They're all nice. just, they're like, well, if God loves me, you know, and can work through me when I make a, you know, a lot of money, he, I might as well do that. Go make a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. Why not? That's smart. That sounds wise. It was, a, and because, you know, Will McDavid, who was talking about this, and he's written a lot about this on Mockingbird, but he was, uh, do Americans really need to know that God values their work more than they already think they, that, that he does, you know? Um, anyway, that's kind of, has well, nothing to do with our conversation. No, well, that, it reminds me of um, Devil Wears Prada, which I loved right up until the end, because uh, the Anne Hathaway character, you know, she finds herself in a job that, despite herself, um, she actually really loves. She comes to actually love the job, and she's in Paris with, with Meryl Streep and whatever, and then she's like, no, but I'm gonna go back to my original dream of what I thought I wanted to do, and it just, it rang really false to me, mm-hmm. because if you, find, if you actually have, by the grace of God, find yourself in a position where you are happy and enjoy what you're doing, do not leave that thing. Like, maybe you're actually called to, uh, to do that, and with regard to these undergraduates, like, who, I mean, what was I? I was a art history major. I thought yeah. I, was, I started off as philosophy that and then right. anthropology That's wild, and then art history. And so um, my dad actually gave me really good advice. He said, "Hey, RJ, just undergrad, which I wasn't expecting. I gotta say to get good advice from him, but I did." <laughs> uh, he said, uh, "Undergrad, do what you love, and and you know, for your career, uh, you know, grad school, and, and go spend some time figuring out what you actually want to do." as opposed to quite a few people I know who like went straight into law school and then started to practice law and hated it. And now they have like $250,000 in loans to pay off and they don't know what they're gonna do. So hmm. anyway. Welcome to the 21st century. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, well, on that note, Sarah, do you have anything Prada related to share? I don't. I learned such wonderful things about RJ just all the time. And now I've learned that like you what? love the devil loves product. Well, or the devil wears product. Um, Until the end. You know, uh, you singing that whole montage from the little mermaid um, on a podcast recently was a real eye opener for me. So would you like to do it for them? 
No, but I will say <laughs> my, the person, the person, the person next to me was watching Tangled uh, on the way over, and I, um, I forgot the cord for my headphones, so I had the headphones but not the cord that connected. I was really jealous because I, I tear up in the um, rowboat scene every time with the floating lanterns. <laughs> I do. It just, uh, the, it's another one of those movies that I you know watch with my boys, and they look over and they're like, "Dad, this is like." Get it together, you know? <laughs> so, anyway, I do love me some well, Tangled. Speaking of movies, yeah. the second uh, uh, item to talk about is this new movie, I Feel Pretty, which is an Amy Schumer vehicle, which just came out, and I haven't seen it. I mean, it just came out. Uh, but Amanda Hess, writing in the New York Times, wrote something that was sort of right down our wheelhouse, and I'm fascinated to hear what you guys think. It's called, I Feel Pretty in the Rise of Beauty Standard Denialism. Uh, this is the, she summarizes the movie this way. The down-on-herself Renee, played by Amy Schumer, conks her head in a soul cycle accident and awakens believing that she has miraculously become supermodel hot. She revels in it, charging into a bikini contest, snagging a promotion, and basking in the affections of a beefy corporate scion, only to discover that her looks never changed a bit. The benefits she thought she'd accrued through beauty were won instead through her newfound self-confidence. Right? Sounds, sounds like a Hollywood movie. Uh, the movie suggests that the only thing holding back regular-looking women is their belief that looking regular holds them back at all. That attitude puts the onus on the individual women to improve their self-esteem instead of criticizing societal beauty standards writ large. And this is where it gets really interesting. Amanda writes, the reality is that expectations for female appearances have never been higher. It's just become taboo to admit that. This new beauty standard denialism is all around us. It courses through cosmetics ads, fitness instructor monologues, Instagram captions, and increasingly popped feminist principles. Keeping up appearances is no longer simply a superficial pursuit, it's an ethical one too. A woman who fails to conform to the ideal is regarded as a failure of, as a person. You're not caring for yourself enough. You're not, you know, there's, there's this kind of language. So now corporate entities are cynically encouraging women to engage in beauty and fitness routines to become better people, not more attractive ones. The beauty ideal is so pervasive that it is internalized in many women who are haunted by idealized visions of their own bodies, fantasies of how they might look after ongoing, undergoing extreme diets or cosmetic procedures. Now, they highlight the Dove ads mm -hmm. with sort of beauty in, in any shape or something like that, and I, I always thought those were kind of nice ads. Um, wrong. Wrong. You were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel totally unqualified to talk about any of this, I guess, but it's uh, what is I found interesting, and I'll continue to read, is this sense that we're feeling good about ourselves uh, for maybe not appearing as superficial, but now it's you have to look incredibly good the law is even higher. It's the just law is higher even and higher, higher. and high. the bar is just constantly raised. And you yeah. have to be, it has to be ethically self-realized. You're not doing it to please society or to please a, a man. You're doing it because you doing have it for you. integrity as a yeah. human being yeah. and self-willpower and you're actualized. It struck me as, um, you know, I, I'm not a woman, uh, <laughs> but I am married to one, yes. and so I hear about this sort of thing all the time, and this beauty standard denialism. Sarah, I'm very interested to know what you think. Um, well, there's a couple different thoughts that come to mind. The first one is I, th I think about how women, the, there's the law of self-care that mm -hmm. we have, and I love, you know, that a lot of, like, what we interpret as self-care as women are, like, things that 
women on the Real Housewives of Orange County do, you know, like you get your nails done or you get your hair done or you get, you know, you get all these things done all in the name of like taking care of yourself. And I don't know if you've ever sat in a nail salon for an hour and a half, but I don't feel great the whole time. I mean, it's not meditative. Jesus isn't there. You know what I mean? Like I feel guilty for having someone be at my feet and I feel like I'm spending too much money on this. I mean, there's like all this head clutter and, you know, then there's the end product and I feel worse afterwards, but it's self-care. So that's something. So it's justified. So it's justified. The other thing I think about that's interesting is that the current, I'm so glad to be 35 and not 25 right now. Cause the current, cause like at 35, you're just like, I'm not doing that. You know what I mean? Um, but like the current thing of like, you've got a lot of really long hair, right? And then ladies, right? And then you pile it up in such a way that it's got to like stay on top of your head in like a messy bun. And then your clothes have to like look casual, but you have to spend a lot of money on them. And they have, there's these pictures of women like modeling them. And like one thing is tucked into one side and one jean like, and you're like, I'm not, you see a picture of yourself later, you know, when you think you've captured this look and you, you just look pregnant again, you know what I mean? Like, and so I just, it's, it's so damning, you know, this, this, this thing of being a woman right now. Well, she, this is, she goes on to say, beauty standard denialism has exploded online. This is mm-hmm. something we all know. She, uh, she writes, social media puts us ever more, ever more pressure on appearances, but also on projecting politically correct politics, inclu- including promoting concepts like body positivity, self-acceptance, and, quote, expanding the beauty ideal to incorporate diverse bodies. Ultra-slim models like Kendall Jenner and Bella Hadid parrot lines about how they, quote, unquote, didn't mean to lose weight even though they post images on Instagram that appear edited to make them look even thinner. Women are expected to perform femininity and feminism at once. Uh, What's more, these women are meant to be naive to their own looks, like the heroine of Brooklyn, who was uh, described in the screenplay to Brooklyn, uh, Swarcy Ronan, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, as open-faced pretty without knowing it. Mm -hmm. Our culture's ideal woman is beautiful and modest. And stupid. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's interesting, right? That you would be really beautiful and put lots of effort into it and then be like, oh, me? What do you mean? I mean, you know, like, what is that? But you're supposed to be, it's more in- instead of just, instead something. of one, adopting a new ideal, it's actually, let's just do both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pile it all on. Yeah. Pile it all on. Yeah. It sounds incredibly uh, exhausting. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. RJ? I mean, you're the, you're, you're the, the, I like to think of you as the second woman on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I feel like I'm a happy medium between the two of you. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say because, I mean, I, you know, my wife could certainly talk about this. I mean, I have, uh, I have all brothers. She has all brothers. We have all boys. Uh, and I hate to say this, but sometimes I, I, I mean, I would love to have a daughter, but I also feel like it'd just be a lot harder in, in a lot of ways to deal with those um, pressures that I know that she would be under. So I don't, um, I don't quite know what to say about this, to be honest with you. It's, it's, de- it's depressing. It's this, sad. This book I hate that, it. This book that Sarah and I um, read this past summer, I say that we read it because we, you, we were talking about it a lot, called um, The Unmade Bed. Mm-hmm. And it's got this incredible chapter called uh, Girls' Crisis, Boys' Crisis. And uh, to say that one is having a crisis does not mean to say that the other's not too. In fact, if you look at the data, the boys are underperforming. 
They're extremely sad. Uh, they're having a crisis too. Meanwhile, yeah. the women are expected to be goddesses. Yeah. Self-actualized, empowered goddesses with no weakness. And it's a uh, girl's crisis, boy's crisis. That's how I would like to see it. It's just like, it's the crisis of the law that is um, ratcheting up in ways that are so ingenious and finely calibrated that every time you think it can't get uh, worse, it does. Now, this is how she ends it, because um, she says, why is it so hard to talk about this? I suspect it's also uh, that it's simply too painful to address head on. The amount of brain power I spend every day thinking about how I look is a monumental waste. The sheer accumulation of images of celebrity bodies in my browser history feels psychopathetic or psychopathic, something like that. I like psychopathetic, <laughs> psychopathic too. feels psychopathic. Um, I like to think of myself as a pretty smart person, but the truth is that I can't seem to think my way out of this. The only way I've found to banish momentarily that shadow of the idealized self is to pay for it to go away with a Sephora shopping spree or a spin class. <laughs> Boom! You know, it's like... It's really good. There you have it. One thing I will say, I find this consistently depressing, is how our culture... Um, glorifies attributes at the end of the day people actually can't help. You know, Dave and I, you and I have talked about this, how uh, with regard to food, I sort of feel like people, they have one of two attitudes towards food. They either, when they get really stressed out, they eat a lot, or when they get really stressed out, they stop eating. And I just happen to be in the second category, and it's not something I, because I have not gotten a physical in quite a while. It's sort of terrifying. I'm hoping that I'll die before I'm 50, so I never have to get a colonoscopy. No! Um, but anyway, uh, but I don't eat. Like literally, a lot, and you know this about me, like I have two cups of coffee in the morning, I skip lunch, and usually when I get home for dinner, that's the first meal I've had all day. And when I do have lunch, I fall asleep at like two o'clock in the afternoon, so I hate it. And that has nothing to do with, it's not a choice. It's, it, it, and then, I, you know, there's an article in Sports Illustrated about um, Charles Barkley that I remember like 15, 20 years ago when he was playing for the Phoenix Suns. And uh, for all you sports fans out there, because I know Mockingbird is big on the sports fans. Charles Barkley is hey. hilarious, by the way. You know who that is? The round mound of rebounds, Dave? Who did he play for before keep he talking. played for the Suns, Dave? Just keep talking, yeah, right, Dave. It's really interesting Anyway, it is interesting. So he's, um, he grew up in Alabama. You know, he's African-American. And you would never think about this about him. Every night when he got home from a basketball game, he would vacuum his entire house. And all of his hallways were lined with mirrors, and he had to make sure that the vacuum lines lined up before he went to bed. Mm. Why do you think he was a successful basketball player? That's why. Because he was anal, because he was neurotic, because his attention to detail was so overblown. And a lot of the times you meet, quote unquote, successful people, and there's a dark side to their success, you know, that they're, they're, they're compulsive, they're, or they, you know, people overeat, they undereat, that, that People's wills are bound, right. you know, but, we, but in our culture, we think it's just to make better choices, try harder, get educated, find a better strategy, but that's not true. People just are the way they are, and there's a certain set of behaviors that our culture has chosen to glorify and lift up, and another set that we've chosen to denigrate, when the reality is neither set of those people have really any control over who they are. So it's just sad. I just feel badly for people that... Uh, have no control over themselves, but, they, the, but that leads them to make choices, quote-unquote choices, that our culture doesn't value. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. 
It does. So, it's also why I think Mockingbird like ruins exercise classes for people. Because if I go to an exercise class and the instructor's like, you're doing awesome. If you can do this, you can do anything. You're amazing. The whole time I'm like in my head, like, that's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. Like, you know, I mean, there's because there's freedom in being like, no, I actually like really like to eat ice cream when I'm stressed out. And I really don't like do you, to, do you, you know, like to exercise. Or do you need to exercise? I, I'm pretty neurotic about exercise. My wife, like you, for example, you're an amazing writer, but you need to write. Yes. You have no choice. It's like you'll go crazy if you don't it's write. Compulsive. Right? Like my wife needs to exercise. If yeah. she goes a few days without exercising, it's not a good scene. Right. Plus, she's an introvert, so it's like the only time she gets alone because we have a small child. Right. So, um, well, yeah. one of the things I'm going to try to talk about um, in the, the, my talk, a couple days from now, is that the uh, form that uh, this takes, when we talk about body positivity, it sounds like compassion. And it sounds like, uh, and we talk about expanding the ideals of, of what's beautiful. It sounds great. I mean, I think that that's, um, and, and in fact, the, re the response to I Feel Pretty, the movie, has been basically like, what are you talking about? You're a pretty, like, you're a blonde uh, white lady. And like, if you search pretty woman in, you know, if Julie Roberts doesn't come up, it's just white ladies with blonde hair, that that's our culture's ideal. But um, uh, where was I going with that? The, uh, the, the, the form of it takes is compassion. It sounds like we're trying to be nicer to people, but the, the instrument of it is the law. Mm -hmm. And so you're shouting at people to expand their beauty ideal to feel better about themselves uh, while also, or else. or else. And so it creates even more despair, I think. I mean, I, yeah. I don't even, I don't know what the answer is, but it's like this, it's this, it's in every area of the world right now, uh, especially when we're politicizing everything, what sounds like compassion, when the law is the way that you're trying to make people more compassionate, it backfires. And you have Amanda Hess saying, the only way I can escape this is by paying someone to distract me so hard uh, from my idealized self. And the low level and sometimes you know, uh, acute level of pain that I'm in all the time. The most unfulfillable law is feel good about yourself, right? Like yourself. You, no one, no one feels good about themselves, except for psychopaths. Mm -hmm. You know, like you have it's moments. True. You yeah. have moments. Yeah. Like, no, I, I do want to say that this makes me feel so even worse for people who have uh, beach weddings. Sorry if you had a beach wedding, but I feel like the expectation. This is like the best thing about a church wedding. Like. 75% of it is done for you. You show up, it's pretty, they know the words. You don't have to write something that's awkward that you have to say about this person that you probably don't know that well, but you're gonna make, you know. But like a beach wedding, it always feels like a really anxious thing for me because not only is the bride, and now brides have to look casual, which freaks me out, but you have to look like, it's the same thing. It's the tousled hair, it's the is she pregnant dress, it's the whole thing. And and you're and you're at a beach and you have, it's just, I don't know, it feels, it's like reminds me of why like getting married, especially as a woman right now, there's so many expectations. So just have them in churches. <laughs> What's our next article, plug, Dave? Yeah. Plug, plug. Um, I will say this. I, so, you know, you, you may or may not know that the whole, the big to-do funeral, the Bush funeral, was at Sarah and my uh, church this past weekend. And I actually had a wedding to do that Saturday night. And the rehearsal had to get canceled for obvious reasons. But the bride texted me on Thursday night. And her text was along the lines of, 
hey, I know this is a really important time for the Bush family and for the church and for the country as a whole, so I just want you to let you know that we're happy to flex in whatever way we need to. So <laughs> and I showed nice. to him on Thursday night, like on the, before this, I showed it to my wife, and I was like, can you believe this? This is the greatest, this is the best person on earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was, that was encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one bride who was not, bride. at least in that moment, in that one moment, was not super anxious about getting married. Yeah. Well, last but not least, I figured since we've just infiltrated New York, we should talk about Chick-fil-A. Yes. Yes. Um, there th- actually has been a Chick-fil-A in New York for a little while. I know that. In the I'm, NYU Student Center. I'm aware of this the Chick-fil-A yes. movement. Um, <laughs> this dangerous Chick-fil-A thing that's happening. You might know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the New Yorker published this. Um, what those in the biz called Tone Deaf um, editorial about Chick-fil-A opening uh, uh, four locations now in Manhattan and him lamenting the fact that it was so popular because of its, I think he calls it creepy Christian traditionalism, but then goes on to talk about how how dare they try to foster community with sort of reclaimed wood as though every single other restaurant in New York, by the way, isn't doing that. Just go to front of a farmer two blocks away. You'll know what I mean. It'll look like a Chick-fil-A. Trust me, there's no farm. uh, it'll look like a Chick-fil-A, but it'll be cost more, and it won't taste as good. There you go. So, <laughs> um, and it goes into all this stuff, like the chief you know, appeal of Chick-fil-A is comfort and palliative, and you just want to be like, no, it's, have you had the spicy chicken sandwich? <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's, the frosted lemonade is really good, it's and really it's like $3, good. you know? Yeah. And, um... Anyway, it's not to weigh in about Chick-fil-A outside of the fact that it is delicious and the people are really nice and they never ask you, you know, how you vote or what religion you are. Uh, but it is the fact that Stephen Carter, a black guy who, uh, who's like a th- professor of law at Yale, uh, used to clerk for U.S. Supreme Court, uh, you know, Thurgood Marshall, the famous uh, justice, he wrote something for Bloomberg called The Ugly Coded Critique of Chick-fil-A's Christianity. And this is what he said. I thought it was worth recounting as we enter into New York, which is where I was born, and I have a huge amount of love for this place. Uh, when you mock Christians, you're not mocking who you think you are. A 2015 Pew Research Center study of race and ethnicity among U.S. religions provides some basic facts. In the first place, if you're mocking Christians, you're mostly mocking women, because women are more likely than men to be Christians. The greatest disproportion is found among black Christians, of whom only 41% are male. So you're mocking black women in particular. Overall, people of color are much more likely than whites to be Christians, and pretty devout Christians of that. Some 83% of all black Americans are absolutely certain that God exists. No other group comes close to this figure. Black Christians are far more likely than white Christians, 84% to 64%, to describe religion as very important in their lives. Of all ethnic groups, black Christians are the most likely to attend services, pray frequently, and read the Bible regularly. They are also the most likely to believe that their faith is the place to look for answers to questions about right and wrong. And they are, by large margins, the most likely to believe that the Bible is literally the inerrant word of God. In short, if you find Christian traditionalism creepy, it's black people you're talking about. Around the globe, the people most likely to be Christians are women of color as well, not just in America. Which brings us to one last point from the Pew study. Among Latinos and Asians, Christians are overwhelmingly first-generation immigrants. I think he's saying something important. When you're mocking Christians, you're not actually mocking the Mockingbird Conference. Gosh, I'm off my game. (laughs) It's terrifying to be doing this in front of you guys. Keep going, Dave. 
It's scary. Uh, well, it, 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 it's, 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 I think it's a, it's a wise reminder that, you know, he's, what he's doing is he's pitting people's fear of being racist versus fear of being uh, homophobic or, uh, you know, um, anti-Islamic. Or it's, it's like what Donald Glover's always doing on Atlanta, if you watch that show. He's pitting people's isms against one another because that's where we are. And it's very interesting to watch how people squirm when you're that wedded to one specific view of yourself as righteous, what happens when it comes up against a different view of righteousness. And I thought this was a wonderful thing, but it also reminded me of Silicon Valley this past week. Uh, I don't know if anyone watches that show. It's an HBO show that's very scatological and gross in a lot of ways, but also quite brilliant. It's done by Mike Judge. And they had this, uh, this episode last uh, week in which one of the programmers they were working with um, was described to a board. He was tr- the Richard Hendricks, the protagonist was trying to normalize him to these other, you know, get him to, hey, get to know this guy. He's a really great guy. Um, he and his partner, they go to church, they run, they go to Bible studies, and, you know, they're just sort of, you know, they, they just hang out all the time at church and all this stuff, and the guy afterwards furious. He's like, I can't believe you did that. You outed me as a Christian. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, the, everyone's pulling out, all the investors are pulling out, and finally, someone has to pull Richard Hendricks aside and says, listen, this is Silicon Valley. You can be polyamorous till the, all the day long and people will call you brave. You can put LSD in your cornflakes and people will call you a pioneer. The one thing you cannot be is a Christian. Is a Christian. And you know, that is, plays into fears of persecution, I think, about our, our self-pity and all that stuff, which is, gets kind of gross. Um, and yet, and yet, uh, maybe there's something to but, it. And yet, Pete Doctor, you know, is a Christian at Pixar, and there's a huge, you know, amazing Presbyterian church in Menlo Park, like right in the middle of Silicon Valley. And I, so, uh, so yeah, point taken. But there, there are there are Christians in unexpected places. How do you guys deal with, uh, or do you think it's completely uh, a scarecrow? Do you think uh, do you encounter any taboo, uh, any kind of shame for being a Christian? I mean, I think. Or is it you just live the in Texas? fastest way to not have friends. No, it doesn't have anything to do with where we live. The fastest way to not have friends is to go to like your neighborhood women's book club and be like, oh, I'm an Episcopal priest and so is my husband. Because you're not just Christian at that point. And I mean, you can, I mean, Houston's a pretty broad place. You know what I mean? And so we have people of all different religions in our neighborhood and I can see women's faces. They're like, we're never hanging out. I mean, it's just like an immediate, like, she's not going to be fun. Why did she even come to this? Like, what's she going to say about the book? She's going to try to get me to come to her church. Like it becomes a whole um, weird world to step into. And, you know, as somebody who's from the deep South, I remember growing up with a lot of the super right um, Oh gosh, what's it called? Oh, where you save yourself for marriage. True love waits. I remember growing up with the true love waits stuff, not in my own household of origin. Um, my parents were true love waits for college, but everybody else's houses were true love waits. And you know, you pray around the flagpole and it had this just militaristic sort of feel to it at that point. And now I feel like I'm seeing the same thing on the other side where, um, it, you're just excluded from certain things. I mean, that's been that's been my experience just at a, you know, trying to make friends level. Um, I mean, saying you're an Episcopal priest as a woman is a lot for people to take in. I know that. Because people are always like, voodoo. Like, what is, 
what's an Episcopal, what's a priest, priestess. you're in you know, a priestess. Mm. Yeah. And I'm like, only that's my Fertility side hustle. Goddess. That's my side <laughs> hustle is voodoo. Okay, keep going. <laughs> I, really, hardly any of our close, besides people that I work with, mm-hmm. um, hardly any of our close friends are Christians. Uh, and in some ways are probably... I don't know. I guess it would be kind of hostile, but at the same time, I feel like they have no, they have absolutely no idea what Christianity actually is. And these are highly educated, you know, people with PhDs, people who are astrophysics majors at Yale. And one of my good friends, and forgive me if I've told this story on the podcast before, this is the Yale guy who I love, and uh, Polly. Yeah, Paul, Polly, uh, Polly, I'll give you a shout out. But um, we were talking, he got into this really. Um, uh, AI kick, this artificial intelligence kick, and about how the world's going to be taken by robots. And, and RJ, he's like, you know, people in your line of work may actually have a really important role here, you know, because someone's got to teach these robots how to be moral and how to make good moral choices. And that's your job, right? Your job is to make people moral. And I said, no, Paul. <laughs> and at this point, we've been talking about it for like two years. I'm like, Paul, moral- morality is not my job. Forgiveness is my job. I'm not there to make people good. I'm there to forgive them for the fact that they're not good. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we had. A, I was like, have you ever read the Bible? He's like, you know, I've been meaning to. And um, his, his wife was a nun who ran away from a convent, and her, 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 his father was studying to be like an Orthodox priest and left. So, and then they were hippies in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. Anyway, and then he went to Yale. <laughs> but he went. I said, well, hey, I gave my Bible. I said, just read, like, don't read John because it's sort of confusing. Read Luke, maybe, or Matthew. So just Matthew, because it was the first one. And a week, two weeks later, I said, uh, he said, so I read it. I said, so what did you think? I said, we've had these conversations. Don't let me prejudice you. What did you think of it? He's like, well, Jesus is totally different than I thought he would be. Mm. He's a wild man. He's crazy. And I said, okay. And, and what, it was the, what it was the essential message? If you were to boil it down to one thing, he, he thought about it. He said, well, he said, I feel like Jesus came and he said, you are all a total disaster. And you know what? Fuck it, you're all forgiven. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yes, Paul, that is Christianity. And it actually, it, it, um, you know, sometimes I think to myself that it's, it's up to me to be a really good preacher or teacher or evangelist. Sometimes it's just a matter of people actually reading the Bible. Like, stop, like this guy who wrote this, whoever, or, you know, the guy who wrote the New Yorker article, go read the Bible. Yeah. You know, like, it's ridiculous because it's so good. It's Jesus is so good. And Paul is so good and there's so much good stuff in there. So quit pretending that you're educated when you have no idea what's in the Bible and in, in, in the New Testament. It doesn't take long. It's a short little book. Anyway, that's my rant Yeah. for now. Well, I think, we'll, well, I think uh, as we infiltrate New York with um, the next few days, I uh, hope and pray that it's with um, uh, maybe a little bit of humility and grace and that Jesus, the actual... Uh, the actual Jesus, not the projection, not the uh, stereotype. Um, maybe might he be present among us? So I think it's time actually to go into the other room. Thank the, you guys. The other room. The, what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> the sanctuary. The other room. Into the sanctuary. Anything? Any parting shots, Sarah? No, I mean, I just feel compelled to say this as a mother that I love Chick-fil-A because it's really easy to take your kids into. And Jesus is great. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, try the frosted lemonade. Thank you for coming. Bye. <laughs> Brought to you by Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.